Woke up this morning into my car to start my day. First stop is my buyer, who six months ago walked away. When I arrived, he treats me like a commodity. Give me a speck on his inner connect, he wants price and delivery. And if we're over $20, he tells me this business we're gonna lose. He's got a singing that old, don't know value. Welcome to the Value Clarity Podcast, where we talk about customer value and all it means to an organization. Today, I've got a real special guest. He is the head of Impact Pricing, a consultancy and training firm that is all around pricing. He and I are kindred spirits in understanding value-based pricing. So I'd like to welcome Mark Stiving. Mark, uh, say hello, and uh, if you wanted to, right at the outside, go ahead and give your coordinates uh, on the web so people can find you. Sure. Hey, Mark. It's uh, great to be here. Easiest way to find me is on LinkedIn. I live on LinkedIn. I answer tons of questions on LinkedIn. So just look me up, Mark Stiving, S-T-I-V-I-N-G. I'm the only one there. And you can see my companies at impactpricing.com and at championsofvalue.com. Great. So tell me about... Uh, pricing in your world and what your practice is because uh, your practice you and I agree a lot on value and value-based pricing but uh, our clients are quite a bit different so I wanted to learn a little bit more about how pricing how pricing consulting works in your world and and, uh, so tell us about that sure no worries Uh, first off let me clarify one thing I don't do consulting I like to say those words it makes me happy Um, (laughs) I think of consultants as people who actually do the work and I do pricing education. I like to teach people about pricing. Um, I I coach them, I mentor them, but I rarely do the work. Um, I just find it more fun and I can leverage my time better that way. No, that makes a lot of sense. So tell me about the, the companies you work with, you know, I, where I work and my history has all been, where salespeople are selling a semi-custom or highly customized product, and uh, they have a lot of control over pricing. And you work in with with companies that have uh, pricing books and pricing policies, and, and they do pricing a little bit different. You're also doing some work with um, subscription pricing. So tell me more about how the pricing function works at a company that you work with. Yeah, pricing is a really unusual thing, but let's say that I'm going to, I'm going to talk today about uh, companies that have products to price. And when I say a product, I mean, typically we're going to sell the same thing over and over and over again. We might tweak it a little bit. And by the way, that product could be a service, um, could be a product, it could be software, it doesn't matter. To us, the single most important factor when we try to figure out what the right price is, is how much is our customer willing to pay for us? And there's methods or techniques that we can use. We can use the data from purchase history. Uh, We can do survey data. Van Westendorp's price sensitivity meter is a pretty common method for doing that. So for us, we care about that customer's willingness to pay, first and foremost, in the act of setting the price or creating the list price. But I got to tell you, that's what people think of when they think of pricing. When I think of pricing, I think it is way bigger than what I just told you. Because once you go down the rabbit hole that says, I need to understand how buyers perceive our value, 
how much value they get from us. Then suddenly, doesn't that change the way you teach your salespeople to go get that value? Doesn't that change the way you teach your marketing people to find the right types of buyers and communicate that value? Doesn't that change the way your product managers should be deciding which features they're gonna build next and put into your next product? When yeah. I think about pricing, I think about it as creating, communicating, and capturing value. I love that, Mark, and um, so glad you, you brought that to the fore because what salespeople, well, what customers do is they decide what outcomes your product, whether that product or service can deliver them, and then how bad they want those outcomes. And we know from consumer behavior, from consumer psychology, that customers don't do what classical economics teaches and that is you tell them what you do and the customer figures out all that means to them all the ramifications all the possible outcomes and then they do a detailed financial analysis and they develop a monetary willingness to pay inside their own heads when all you do is give your feature and Salespeople uh, live in the difference between classical economic theory and reality. Yes. Uh, and so when you first started talking about willingness to pay, um, that kind of leaves a guy like me flat um, because you have to manufacture willingness to pay between the customer's ears. I think that's a very fair statement. Uh, the way I think about willingness to pay uh, let's talk about it in the world of competitive situations where you could choose my product or you could choose a competitor's product. I think of willingness to pay as perceived value and perceived value consists of what's the real differentiation. So how, how's my product truly better than my competitor's product? And then what's my customer's perception of that differentiation? Right? What do they believe my product does better or worse than my competitor's products does? And, and once we understand that perception, now we can focus, at least marketing and salespeople, can focus a lot on how do I help buyers understand our value so that the perceived value is much higher. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're improving the perception. If there's some value that they should have, that they don't know about, you need to correct that perception. If there is um, an underestimate of what that value should be, you should increase the perception. All kinds of ways to increase the value without necessarily changing your product, but all of it is done inside the customer's mind. Yep, absolutely right, absolutely right. I love working with B2B companies the most. And the reason for that is, if you're good, you should be able to take any feature, any capability, any result, any outcome, and turn that into a dollar value to the customer. We could say, what's the impact of that customer gonna be? Oh, you're gonna make or save another $100,000, awesome. That doesn't mean I get to charge 100,000, but at least I can help the customer realize the value of my product as I start to convince them that my price is worth whatever it is that I'm asking. I completely agree. And that's, that's where I live uh, with my clients is being able to train salespeople to have that conversation. I had a, one client that 
made commercial carpet that wore a little bit longer. And if they wear 20% longer, the, you can charge 19% higher and still be better in the classic dollars per year calculation. But that's only scratching the surface because the interruption, the business interruption, when you have to change your carpet out, if that's underneath your 24 seven by 365 customer service function, that business interruption of changing the carpet out costs more than the acquisition price of the carpet. Yeah. And so we help salespeople understand all those different tentacles that your value, that same feature differential um, has tentacles all around the customer's company. And if you're only looking at a couple of them, you're only selling a little bit of the value you offer. Yeah, and, and so I want to toss out an opinion, and I'd love to hear your opinion on it as well, Mark. I think that it ought to be marketing's responsibility to collect those stories, to collect those value statements or value propositions. Now, it's not going to be the same value proposition or the same dollar value for every client, but if marketing's collected a whole bunch of these and they hand them to the sales team, now it gives sales the ability to, to query individual buyers and say, hey, I wonder if this one value statement resonates with that buyer. Now I'm going to go down that path to quantify it. I like what you're saying um, mostly. I think that marketing is one of the acceptable places. There are some companies where that might be in a sales enablement function, which um, and it may or may not be in marketing, but I absolutely agree that somebody and that marketing is one of the better places for it. Somebody should be collecting all of those stories and turning that into um, a targeting targeted conversation list, a value hypotheses list, so that salespeople have a short list. When I'm talking to this kind of a persona at a customer, these are the three likely conversations where we can uncover some value in a hurry. Uh, I love when marketing does that because now marketing can start creating content around that same story so that a salesperson has some content that they can put in front of the customer that reinforces that same message. So I mostly agree with you, but there are some companies out there where marketing isn't quite the right organization for that. Yeah, I think anytime you say who owns and fill in the blank, different companies behave differently and that's totally okay or acceptable. Yeah. Um, I like to teach a concept I call value tables, which is very similar to what we've been talking about. And to me, the value table has four basic columns to it. Uh, what's the problem that we're going to go solve? What's the solution, which is our feature? What's the result or the outcome we expect? And then finally, what's the value? And that should be able to quantify in dollar value for a B2B type company. Yep. Now, you, obviously, call that, you call that a value table? I call that a value table. Yep. Yep. And, and obviously that value is different or the dollar value is different. And even the outcome is different for every buyer or customer. Mm -hmm. But having examples there is super valuable to our sales team. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, value for your product is different for every customer. You know, salt is salt is more valuable for cooking than as an industrial ingredient. Uh, it's more valuable further from the ocean than closer to the ocean. So 
and it's more valuable on a hot, dry day than on a rainy, humid day. Yes. <laughs> so um, any product has different value to different customers at different times. Yep. Um, you know, when I was mountain biking and dehydrated, and well, not dehydrated, I was hyper, whatever that is, when, you're, when you don't have enough salt in you, but you, I had plenty of water, but I was cramping because I didn't have the salt. Um, there was a significant price I would have paid for a salt tablet at that point. Huh. Um, so I think you're absolutely right. I love the idea of a value table. I do something very similar. Uh, I feed it with something that I call a value network where we start with one of your differentiated features and then we hypothesize all the different value or customer outcomes that could come from that feature. And then who cares about those, each of those different outcomes? Um, and then it, all of that information feeds a value table. Yeah. I call it something different, but it is exactly what you talk about. What is the hypothesized value? And once you've gone to talk to the customer, what, value did you actually find and monetize with that customer? Yeah, one of the things I find is we, as I help clients create this value table, is they can't, they can't sit down and figure it out from any one column. And so usually we pop back and forth and we say, okay, what problems do you think you're solving for the customer? What problem, why did they, why did they buy from you? Or we say, what results are they looking for? Or we say, let's go through each feature you have and say, what do we think that does for the client? Why did we have it? What problem did it solve? So kind of bouncing around columns, just get some brainstorming and coming up with even more ideas. Yeah, um, I absolutely love that. That value network helps um, guide some of those conversations down some likely areas of, of differentiation where you might be able to have those. So it, it guides those conversations through a value table. Nice. Yeah. So you do a lot of podcasting. You get a lot of guests. So you come across a lot of perspective. I'm wondering, I had a question, what is the most interesting thing or some of the most enlightening things that you found uh, in all of your uh, interviews and podcasts? Oh, that's not a fair question. It had to be when you were on my podcast, Mark. <laughs> Ooh, good, good answer. <laughs> You know, it's, it's funny. Um, every single podcast I find interesting and I learn things. The reason I invite a guest on is because I'm curious about what they think and I get the opportunity to learn from them. I think the reason people like my podcast is, is simply because I'm so curious. I'm always going to ask those questions to try to figure out what it is that I don't know. And hopefully we're all going to learn lessons and take that and put it into some framework that, that makes sense for us all. So I'm not sure I could give you one answer, although I'll give you one that, that's opposite of something you and I have been talking about. Uh, I had a lady on, I recorded it a couple of weeks ago. I think it's going to come out next Monday. But um, she's an expert in behavioral economics. And I, I made the statement that said, in subscription business, once you go beyond the acquisition stage, behavioral economics don't work anymore. And she absolutely proved me wrong. <laughs> I'm going to have to listen to that. I'd love to, yeah, I'd love to learn more about that. 
it was uh, it was very good. I enjoyed I enjoyed her kindness and her intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she told you you were wrong kindly. That's yes. Right. <laughs> well, as any good guest should, I suppose. Yes. All right. So here's something I want you to respond to. Um, when I was a consultant with Miller Hyman, I ran with it's probably over that eight or nine years I was a Miller Hyman consultant, maybe a hundred other Miller Hyman consultants. And each of them did one or 200, sometimes up to 500, depending on your practice, sales deal reviews per year. And some of those guys had been there for 20 years. So the aggregated experience of these people probably covered hundreds of thousands of deal reviews. And since then, I've replicated this outside of Miller-Hyman to the other major, major methodologies. And the overwhelming consensus is that the one thing that salespeople are universally bad at, if you're going to guess that somebody missed something in an opportunity pursuit, uh, the smart money goes on understanding customer value. And I was a research assistant for, uh, in consumer behavior in college. And value is what moves the customer decision. And so the one thing that salespeople are the worst at is the one thing that moves customer decisions the most. Um, does that parallel your experience or is that, does that statement of mine <laughs> give you any, any thoughts? Is there anything you want to say or add or amplify that? Absolutely. First off, I, I'm not surprised. I'm not sure that I could explain it other than to say, in order for me to understand a customer's value, I actually have to go listen to the customer and not talk to the customer. And I think salespeople are really good at pitching our products, not necessarily listening to problems and outcomes and, and what our customers are looking for. But then I want to amplify it in the following way. Our product managers and our marketers do the exact same thing. There's nobody out there actually listening to the customers to figure out what's the real value of what we do. And companies, I think they succeed by luck, but I think they succeed because someone lucked into building the right product or, or maybe I had that problem. So I built a solution to it. And luckily, a whole bunch of other people had that same problem, so life was good and I was representative. But boy, I wish, I wish it, not only salespeople would do that, but product managers and product marketers would go do that as well. That's very fair. Um, salespeople are bad at it, but not because they're led correctly and they blow it off. I, um, I did some arithmetic with the Miller-Hyman methodology, and it's similar for everybody else. I just happened to have done the, the numbers, that 10% of the Miller-Hyman blue sheet, the real estate on the piece of paper, is about customer value. 10% of the two-day training timed agenda is customer value. 10% of the coaching, when we teach sales managers how to coach that blue sheet, 10% of that is about value. You know, 11%, 9%, somewhere there yeah. for each of those three. But, and then we're surprised when salespeople only give it 10% of their attention. You know, it's funny, and I don't know Miller Hyman that well, but I would guess that if you look at the 90% that covers everything else, 
I'll bet you salespeople are reasonably good at that before they walk in the door. And the 10% that they're not good at is the 10% we don't give any time to. Yeah. Um, the Miller-Hyman is really good about solving for the interpersonal decision dynamic. In a B2B, complex B2B, uh, decisions are complex and there's social complexity in a group. And that harnessing that and organizing around that will make you more successful. If you net it out and you had zero differentiation, uh, on average, the salespeople who are best at solving for that social complexity are going to outperform. Um, and so that's the nine, that's part of the 90%. And I don't want to trivialize that because it's, it's very important. And if no, none of your competitors are good at selling value either, then uh, that Miller-Harmon methodology is going to be a big difference maker because none of you are doing value, right? So somebody's got to differentiate. Somebody's got to be a better salesperson on other stuff. So, so do you think a salesperson has a gut feel for that interpersonal communication sale that happens? Um, I think most of them do. Um, and when you show them how to kind of diagram, how to kind of um, manage that decision complexity, um, people really gravitate towards that. And they, the people who gravitate towards sales careers uh, often also gravitate towards loving that, um, working that decision-making system and, and helping that group make a decision, even when you're not in the room. And um, I absolutely love the Miller-Harm methodology. Uh, I tell people I'm not just drank the Kool-Aid, I marinated in it because I used it for 25, <laughs> 30 years. Um, so I don't want it to sound like I'm hating on it, but I think there's so much more power in the part of that methodology and every other methodology. Um, so my, my practice is all about getting that 10% up to the right amount. Uh, clearly 10% isn't enough. Yeah, I would, I would agree. So um, I just thought of this. Do you mind if I test you for a second? Sure. <laughs> so if you're going to go out and do a sales pitch for your services to a client, how are you selling value? I want to ask them, uh, how are sales going? Um, tell me more about your discounting process. How does that work? And do you think you're giving up more dollars and discounts and how many dollars if if you if your salespeople were really good at selling value how many of those discount dollars do you think you could not give and how many dollars is that those are all profit dollars you know those aren't just revenue dollars um yeah. and those are easy to calculate that's nice yeah um it's harder to calculate the profits from additional sales um, it's still doable. I think our close ratio could go from 35 to 38%. That's so many dollars and that's so many profit dollars. Um, and the great Miller-Hyman consultants uh, would then go to a vice president of sales and say, all right, vice president of sales, here's how many dollars you think that we might be able to find you in additional revenue or additional profits together. What does that mean for you personally in your career? And they ask that question knowing the average vice president of sales lasts less than two years. 
<laughs> Won't have to look for a job quite as often. <laughs> so, so it's, um, it's really easy to ask about the business outcomes, but when you start turning that into the, the mirror image, the, the personal outcomes, then um, you can be, you, you start adding another layer of value onto the, the business value. Yeah, then we're moving away from the dollars. It's almost like a B2C sale at that point. It's what do you want? So he wants more time with his family. Well, how do you put a dollar value on that? Yeah. Well, you know, um, I think that the business value is what people buy and that personal value is why they buy. Yep. Uh, I say when you've got six people in your buying team and they're in a conference room trying to decide what they're going to do, uh, their choice isn't to advocate for something versus, you know, one option A versus B. Their choice is to either be silent and go along with the group or to speak up and take some personal risk. And what makes them want to speak up and advocate for anything is their personal wins. Mm -hmm. uh, what will come out of their mouth is their description of the business outcomes that you've given them. Uh, so they, what they justify to one another and the, the words that are spoken in the room are all about the business outcomes. But the reason somebody is motivated to advocate, the reason somebody doesn't choose to be silent, is the personal stuff. Very interesting. Okay, so here's what just went through my mind when you were talking about that, Mark. I think salespeople often will describe our features to a potential client, thinking the client can take those features and turn that into benefits and results, and they understand what it is that they're going to get and what the value of the product is. We know that's not necessarily true, but we think, I, I think salespeople think that's the case. And then if you could get a customer that actually understands the true value, the true business value, then we do the exact same thing for that personal connection, right? I get it. You think this is going to make the company another million dollars. You should be able to interpret on your own what that means for you personally. I don't have to help you do that. Um, I respect, yeah, I think that's what happens. And I think that's why salespeople are need to get better. Uh, trust me, I have never ever done what you just said. The second step to say, oh, here's what this means to you personally. I do the business value all the time. Yeah, uh, I, I don't tell them what it means to them personally. I ask them, what does this mean to you in your role as vice president of sales? Yeah. And asking that question does let them respond with just the business results. Um, but if you, if you are alone with them and you've built some credibility that you start, they will start cracking open the door and um, you can start understanding what their personal motivation is. I think even if they don't say it out loud, you just lodged it into their mind. Yeah. Um, my, one of my podcasts from uh, last week was, uh, with somebody who's doing, who's uh, involved in the whole storytelling um, part of the sales world. And telling stories is more impactful for people because it engages the amygdala. And, and there's parts of the brain that are engaged when you tell a story that aren't engaged when you just tell facts and figures. 
buy it, totally true. But if you are asking questions that force them to tell that story themselves, force themselves to visualize them, you know, that vice president of sales, uh, what's going to happen to you personally if you get this outcome? I think that same center of the brain is activated and it becomes much more real to them. So whether you're telling a story or asking questions, you, you, are, you want something to change in their brain. You want them to start telling themselves a story or you tell them a story and now you still have to ask them a question how that story impacted them. Um, you're trying to change something in the, what's going on in their brain. Um, and it's much more impactful um, if that story becomes more detailed and personal to them. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Well, Mark, this has been great. Um, I really appreciate your time. Go ahead and give your coordinates one more time. Sure. The easy ones are impactpricing.com and uh, championsofvalue.com. Find me on LinkedIn. Email me, mark at impactpricing.com. Great. Thanks, Mark. I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for joining us for the Value Clarity Podcast, where because value lives only in the customer's mind, your success happens to be all in your customer's head. Thank you. Well, it ain't easy, cause value's in your buyer's brain. If you're selling on only your features, you're gonna drive both of you insane. And if you ignore your customers' outcomes, you're bound to be paying your dues, cause you'll be singing those old, don't know value blues. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.